Good morning, Grace. We come to the end of the book of Ruth today, and things come to an end. Our Christmas decorations are coming to an end, and Nancy Espino and the ladies that helped put them up and the man that did would like your help tomorrow at 4 p.m. to take down the Christmas decorations. They're hoping they can do it in two hours, and then that's perfect because when you wrap up here, then you could join us in the Ed building in the chapel, and you can join us for prayer because we're going to be praying and seeking God's face as a church. So perhaps the Lord would move your heart to show up tomorrow at four o'clock to help uh, the ladies take down the Christmas decorations. Closing out Ruth today, and Lord willing, next week we're going to begin a series on the Trinity, spending the next several months looking at the fact that the God that we serve is triune. There is one God eternally existent in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we're going to start as a church our year in the coming year in prayer and also by looking at the God that we love so much because he has loved us so much. So I'm excited about uh, doing this series. It's, it's going to be great. Let's pray before we look at Ruth. Father, thank you. We've been celebrating Christmas, the incarnation, the coming of your son, Jesus Christ, the God-man, God with us into this world. And God, we come to the end of the book of Ruth, and we've seen your grace working in the lives of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, and we've seen your grace working in our lives, God. And, and we thank you for your great love for us. And that love is a spillover of the love that you have for your son. As he prayed to you in John 17, he said, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And Father, we pray that you would make your name, your character known to us once again today from your word, and that the love that you had for your son in eternity past that has always existed and the love that and the fellowship that you and Jesus and the Holy Spirit feel for one another and experience that that would become a part of who we are here at Grace. And then may you get great glory as we reflect you to a watching world. Help us now by the power of your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Genealogies can be intriguing once you get past the never-ending list of names. If you can dig in and learn something about the people listed, perhaps their vocation or their habits, then genealogies can get very interesting. For example, Jonathan Edwards, one of my heroes, wore a powdered wig. I'm okay with that. Noted pastor and Puritan theologian, had a family tree that produced some interesting people. An investigation was made at the time of 1,394 known descendants of Jonathan Edwards, of which 13 became college presidents, 65 college professors, 3 United States senators, 30 judges, 100 lawyers, 60 physicians, 75 army and navy officers, 100 preachers and missionaries, 60 authors of prominence, 
won a vice president of the United States. 80 became public officials in other capacities. 295 were college graduates, among whom were governors of states and ministers to foreign countries. If you only read the names of these 1,394 descendants of Jonathan Edwards, you might not come away with an appreciation for genealogies. But if you get some background on the people, it takes on new significance. The same is true with biblical genealogies. No doubt you've encountered the Bible's compilation of genealogies as you've embarked on your read through the Bible in one year plan. And I hope you do something like that every year. You might make it over the hurdle of Leviticus. But when you get to First Chronicles and you encounter the first nine chapters to be nothing but genealogies, you're a good disciple if you keep reading page after page, chapter after chapter, names upon names upon names upon names that are hard even for an Old Testament major to pronounce. You think, as you encounter those genealogies, that in your wildest dreams, there's no way you'll get anything good out of those verses. Perhaps some of you have been tempted to skim over them or even outright skip over these portions of God's Word. The temptation is great. But if you read and dig into the people, you might just unearth some gold. It is the living word of God after all. In fact, I will argue that genealogies are full of theology and very significant. In fact, they're some of my favorite passages to preach from. Today, we'll conclude the book of Ruth and see just how important genealogies in the Bible can be. In short, they become a testimony to the grace and the faithfulness of our God. And that is exactly what we've observed in the book of Ruth so far. We have seen the sovereign, good, but invisible hand of God stitching together the lives of two needy widows during a tumultuous period of Israel's history, and he's stitching their lives together with the thread of his grace. And our lives, our families, our messed up families during our own tumultuous time can become a testimony to that very grace as well. Our big idea today is this. God can do far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. God can do far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request of Him in prayer in your wildest dreams. That phrase comes from Ephesians 3.20 as worded in the message, a paraphrase of the Bible. That's what we'll see in today's text. God rewards his people when they step out in faith and take risks and sacrifice in order to demonstrate loyal covenant love to others. And it pleases God when his people do this because it reminds him of his son. Because that's what he did. God then rewards. His rewards for those who sacrificially love others sometimes exceed their wildest imaginations and even transcend their lifetime. That's what we'll see in our text. So let's look at verse 11 with me. Hear the words of the living God. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said to Boaz, We are witnesses. May the Lord Yahweh make the woman who is coming into your house 
like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephratah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord Yahweh will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord Yahweh gave her conception, and she bore a son. We left off last week, two weeks ago, and Boaz had just redeemed Ruth and Naomi, purchased Naomi's land. He's going to marry Ruth. And now the community comes together and they pray this blessing. Here's what's interesting in the book of Ruth. All of the prayers in the book of Ruth get answered and no one prays for themselves. All of the prayers get answered. In Ruth 1, verses 8 through 9, Naomi prays for Ruth that she would find a husband. That gets answered. Ruth 2, 12, Boaz prays for Ruth to find shelter under Yahweh's wings. He, in fact, answers his own prayer by redeeming her and marrying her. Ruth 2, 20, Naomi prays for Boaz that he would be blessed, and he ends up getting a wife and child at the end of the book. Ruth 3, 10, Boaz prays for Ruth. She's blessed by the Lord because she gets a husband, Boaz. And then here in chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, the community of Bethlehem, the village of Bethlehem, is praying for Ruth and Boaz, and we will see that this prayer, too, gets answered. All of the prayers in the book of Ruth get answered. So we should take our prayers seriously, because God listens to the prayers of his children, and God answers those prayers, and he often answers in ways that we could never even imagine or dream So I think it's safe for me to make a plug for our prayer time tonight in the Ed building, in the chapel from 6 to 7. What might God do after tonight because his people prayed to him? What might God do all week long from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. in the chapel, in the Ed building, this week as we pray? What might God do every Sunday night here in January as we pray and seek his face from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. God will do something beyond our wildest dreams if we would but seek his face and pray. Will you join us tonight and the coming nights? So two weeks ago, we left off. Boaz was redeeming Ruth and Naomi in the land. We pick up in verse 11. There's this chorus of the community pronouncing a blessing on Ruth and then on Boaz. Interestingly, it's not just the elders at this point. By now, as people are likely going out to work in the fields, there's some commotion. People are stopping to see what happened. They hear what's happening as Boaz is redeeming Ruth and Naomi. And then verse 7 says, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, And they prayed. Now, we are not to believe that they all in unison prayed the prayer that is listed here. You know how difficult it is to get a group to speak in unison. If you come to Awana on Wednesday nights, you know when they recite the pledges how there's always people in front of the pack and people in the the back bringing up the rear. So it's not everyone coming together. Likely there was one or two individuals praying this prayer, representing the community, praying a blessing on Boaz and Ruth. They are witnesses to this redemption that has taken place. Then they pray a blessing on Ruth. May the Lord Yahweh make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Now, if you're a student of the Old Testament, at this point you should be thinking, really? They want Ruth to be like 
Rachel and Leah. You know their story in Genesis 29 and 30, how Jacob loved Rachel, wanted to marry her, so he worked for her father Laban for seven years, and then Laban pulled the switcheroo on the wedding night and gave uh, Jacob his older daughter, and then Jacob had to work another seven years in order to get Rachel, and then the two sisters, Leah can have kids, Rachel can't, there's jealousy, they kind of enter into this WrestleMania birthing competition, then they get their midwives involved, and you've got one man and four women, and all of a sudden you get 12 kids, and you thought your family was crazy. But God in his sovereignty was working through all of that mess in order to build up the nation of Israel. And these 12 kids became the 12 tribes of Israel. So is the blessing and prayer of the community that Ruth would be like Rachel and Leah and engage in this sibling rivalry, this birthing competition? Of course not. They are praying that she would be fertile and have many children like Rachel and Leah. Remember, in the ancient Near East, if you did not have children like Naomi at this point, then you would have no heir to take care of the land and no one to care for you in your old age. Children truly were a blessing from the Lord because you had someone to care for you when you were weak and old and gray. Is that how we interpret children as a society? Our culture has such a negative view of children. We have five kids, and so when we go out, we get lots of comments. People are like, wow, or, oh, so neat of you to bring some of your neighbor kids along with your kids to McDonald's. Nope, they're all ours. Sometimes people come up and they think it's strange that we have five kids. In fact, several months ago, someone came up and said, I bet you're a Mormon. (laughs) Nope. And then they said, then you're a Catholic? (laughs) Nope. See, our culture hates children. We have raised pets above kids, above human beings. How sad. In fact, even the church in general sometimes has a negative view of children. Some of us would have never made it in ancient Israel. Some of us would have disqualified ourselves for the community of faith because of our view of children. As we'll see in the rest of this passage, children come from the Lord, the hand of the Lord, and the Lord is good. And if you have children, they are good gifts from a good God. So be very careful how you view your children. Are they a burden or a joy? Yes, it's hard work, but they are not the problem. You are. If your children get on your nerves and interrupt your life, you are the problem, not them. Of course, they may be culpable because of their sin, but your problem is your sin. I'll get off my soapbox now because I'm convicted. Because I spent 10 hours on Wednesday with five kids in a van driving, and I spent 10 hours on Friday with five kids in a van driving We were Genesis 3 and Romans 1 on wheels. (laughs) But it was my heart that I was wrestling with because I am just as selfish and sinful as they are. 
back to the text. The community gathered around the gate and was praying that Ruth would have many children to carry on the name of her deceased husband, Machlone, and her father-in-law, Elimelech. The community of Bethlehem knew and they believed that God can do far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. They knew that God rewards his people when they step out in faith and take risks and sacrifice in order to demonstrate loyal covenant love to others. They knew that it pleases God when his children do this. And they knew that God's rewards for those who do sacrificially love others, his rewards sometimes exceed their wildest imaginations and even transcend their lifetime. They knew this. Here we have the Israelites praying for a Moabite woman to become like some ancient fertile Israelite women. Who would have imagined this when Ruth entered Bethlehem? Who would have imagined or even dreamed that two months after her coming into Bethlehem, having nothing, being homeless and a widow, on the verge of death, who would have guessed two months later she would have a husband and nine months later a baby boy? Then they pray a blessing on Boaz in the middle of verse 11. The community says, May you act worthily in Ephratah and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Let's unpack two of these phrases here. May you act worthily and may you be renowned. The phrase, may you act worthily, literally means do strength. It probably means something like, may you be wealthy or may you prosper. Obviously, the people pray that Boaz would prosper because he has redeemed Ruth and Naomi and and redeemed them from their plight as needy widows. He has bought their land. Clearly, Boaz is not someone to hoard money for himself. So they naturally pray that God would continue to bless Boaz financially because they know Boaz is the kind of guy that goes and blesses others. Then they say, may you be renowned. Literally, in Hebrew, it's call a name. May your name be called. The Net Bible captures the sense of this phrase best in its translation when it says, may you become famous in Bethlehem. The idea of the name of Boaz would be remembered throughout Israel's history. That's what they're praying. May people talk about what you've done forever because you showed loyal covenant love to family members. You sacrificed. As we saw two weeks ago, how ironic that the name of Boaz would live on in Israel's history and the previous The closer redeemer who said, I will not redeem Naomi. I will not redeem Ruth. How interesting we saw two weeks ago that his name is never recorded by the narrator. How the narrator calls him Poloni Almoni, which in Hebrew is like Mr. So-and-so or Mr. What's-Your-Face. Boaz gets remembered in Israel's history forever as recorded in the book of Ruth. But Mr. So-and-So drops out. They're praying, may your name be famous. May people talk about you, Boaz, and what you have done for your people forever. The next aspect of their prayer is found in verse 12. It says, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. 
Again, a student of Old Testament history will find this prayer strange because of the story about how Perez came about. In Genesis 38, we read of one of Judah's sons named Er, who was married to Tamar. Er was a wicked man, and the Bible tells us that the Lord put him to death. And then Er's brother Onan was supposed to come in and sleep with his sister-in-law Tamar so that she could produce an heir for her husband and continue on his name. But he refused, so the Lord put Onan to death. Judah then told his daughter-in-law Tamar to wait for his son Shelah to grow up, and then Shelah would help her produce an heir. But Tamar was impatient, and she dressed up like a prostitute. And Judah saw her on the side of the road, and he slept with her, and she got pregnant. It's a sad tale of sin and bad parenting. So certainly the people in Bethlehem are not praying that Ruth would be like Tamar. That she would be a prostitute. The point of comparison is this. Perez's descendants played a significant role in Israel's history. And Perez was the ancestor of one of Boaz's clans living in Bethlehem. Plus, it was through Tamar, whose husband died childless, that Judah fathered Perez, who became the ancestor of numerous clans, including the clan of Boaz. So they're praying that she would have many descendants and carry on the name of Machlon and Elimelech and Boaz. Now notice how the Lord is ascribed as the one who shall enable Ruth to get pregnant. Look at verse 12 with me. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord Yahweh gave her conception, and she bore a son. Yes, the Israelites are familiar with the birds and the bees, but they know ultimately that it is the Lord who blesses someone and enables them to have children. You remember the narrator has not mentioned God except one other time directly involved in the affairs of his people. Chapter 1, verse 6, he says that the Lord intervened after the famine and gave his people food. And now the narrator is saying that the Lord came and gave Ruth a child. The Lord gives food to his people. The Lord gives children to his people. It appears even that Ruth was not able to get pregnant for all the years that she was married to her husband, Machlon. This is nothing but the goodness of God shown to this woman. A Moabite widow named Ruth links up with an old, crabby Israelite widow named Naomi, and she ends up marrying a godly and wealthy Israelite man by the name of Boaz, and she has children with him. God can do far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. Who would have thought that when Ruth showed up and Naomi showed up to Bethlehem that several months later they would be taken care of for life? Look at verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord Yahweh who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name Be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. 
So now we're fast forwarded at least nine months into the future and the women of the village offer praise or blessing. It's the Hebrew word Baruch. They offer blessing to Yahweh for his provision. And the reason is given. They're blessing, they're praising the Lord because he has supplied Naomi with a redeemer. The women then pray that the redeemer's name would be known throughout Israel's history. But who is the redeemer that they speak of? We would expect it to be Boaz because he's already redeemed her, but it's not. The redeemer that they praise God for is the boy Obed, born to Ruth and Boaz. The phrase here, may he be a restorer of life to you, is the same word that was used in chapter 1, verse 22, when Naomi confessed that Yahweh brought her back empty-handed, that she returned or was restored to Bethlehem empty-handed. Now the narrator uses this word, bring back or restore, and he's showing us that Naomi's situation has been reversed. She returned to Bethlehem or was restored to Bethlehem empty-handed in her eyes, even though Ruth was with her, but now Naomi will have someone who restores her, brings her back to life in her old age. And they say that the Redeemer, Obed, will be a nourisher of your old age. In Hebrew, it's he will sustain your gray hair. Obed would take care of and serve Naomi when she is old and helpless due to her age. Her grandson would be a blessing to her. He would serve her. In fact, that's what the name Obed means. It means one who serves. It means servant. Two observations before we move move on. Naomi does not nurse Obed the way we think. She becomes his dry nurse. This isn't some gray-haired lady nursing a baby. Secondly, the women do not name Obed. Verse 17 just means they they joined in this course of celebration of what they had called uh, what Ruth and Boaz had named their boy. We come to the end of verse 17 and we see that Obed was the father of Jesse and Jesse was the father of David. Who knew That this story of two needy widows, one a despised Moabite, would end with the coming of Israel's king, King David. It shows us that God can do far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. It shows us that God rewards his people when they step out in faith and take risk and sacrifice in order to demonstrate loyal covenant love to others. And that may happen even as you take down Christmas decorations. It pleases God when we do this, when we serve others. And God's rewards for those who sacrificially love others sometimes exceed their wildest imaginations and even transcend their lifetime. Let me ask you, who are you praying for? Who are you demonstrating hesed, loyal covenant love to? Who are you serving? Who are you sharing the gospel with. God may answer your prayers in ways that you could never, ever imagine. He could bless your acts of service so that the results and the benefits extend beyond your lifetime. And he can even do that with Christmas decorations. That's the kind of God that we serve. This section has taught us not to take our prayers too lightly, not to take our acts of service for others too lightly, because God can and often does exceed our wildest imaginations. Now let's move on to the last paragraph. Are we on? 
let's let's move on to those super exciting verses at the close of the book of Ruth. Some of you have been chomping at the bit to get to these because you love these verses. Verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hetzron. Hetzron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nakshon. Nakshon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Like I asked you last week, now doesn't that just warm your heart? Don't you want to lead Bible studies out of this verse? Don't you want to take these five verses and slap them on a coffee mug? We come to the end of the book of Ruth, and it appears that the author has really dropped the ball here. The story ended so well. Two lovers getting married, having a baby, and the old cranky widow gets taken care of. Why go and mess it up with this big list of names? But as we'll see in a moment, this is a truly fitting conclusion, and it gives hope to all of us. With this list of dead people, we see that God's people endure. There are 10 names covering 700 years from roughly 1700 B.C. to 1000 B.C. It starts with Perez in Genesis 28 and it ends with David that we start reading about in 1 Samuel 16. Obviously, some of the names are left out because that's how genealogies in the ancient Near East worked. In fact, what they would often do is the number 7 and the number 10 slot were the most important people listed in the genealogy. And we have Boaz at number 7 and David at number 10. This is not just a list of some random names. If we could only see behind the names, if we could only read between the lines, we'd find a rich theology and a testimony to God's enduring grace. And the common backdrop of those listed in this genealogy is one of turmoil and strife and calamity and economic hardship and fiscal cliffs sounds like it's relevant for today aminadab is mentioned he's mentioned in exodus 6 23 when israel was in bondage in egypt under pharaoh Nakshon is mentioned in the book of numbers as israel wandered through the wilderness salmon is the father of boaz is mentioned in the book of judges which was a time when everyone did was right in their own eyes They're only names. They're distant to you. They're unfamiliar to you. But if you read between the lines, you'll see that God's people endure the hard, difficult times by God's grace. 700 years of God's people who endure. That should give you hope. That should make you want to slap these verses on a coffee mug. This can and should be an encouragement to us. God is indeed working in our lives to bring about his kingdom. The question is whether or not we can read between the lines. God does because he sees the end from the beginning. He knows what he is doing. Think of Ruth's situation and Naomi's situation. Think of what Ruth endured. How is one to read between the lines of her story? David comes from her line. But then fast forward to 1 Samuel 22 where David is on the run from Saul because Saul wants to kill him and David's parents are traveling with him. Where does David send his mom and dad to be safe from Saul's wrath? He sends them to Moab 
to the king of Moab. Ruth could not have known as she entered Bethlehem, a poor, destitute widow, she could not have known that her great-grandson David would send his parents, her grandson, to Moab for safety. But God knew. And once the king of Moab found out that David had some Moabite blood trickling down through him, then of course he would offer asylum to his parents. Reading between the lines will allow us to see that all that Ruth endured ended up being a part of David's life and the security of his parents. Who would have thought that the affliction of Naomi, the loss of her husband, the loss of her two sons, would end up being a help to her family some 100 to 150 years or so later? Now we see what a different light this puts on Naomi and Ruth's situation. All of it was for a purpose that they could never, ever dream of. Their struggles, their poverty, their homelessness, and their acts of loyal love and their prayers all end up working in favor of David so many, many years later. It shows us that God can do far more than you can ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. God rewards His people when they step out in faith and take risks and sacrifice in order to demonstrate loyal covenant love to others. And it pleases our God when His children do this. And then God rewards them. And God's rewards for those who sacrificially love others sometimes exceed their wildest imaginations and even transcend their lifetime. Understand this, Grace. God doesn't just have his eye on you and your circumstance and your situation and your hardship and your suffering. He is also planning for the provision of his people who will come after you. He knows the end from the beginning. So when you find yourself with a section of endless names like we have here at the end of Ruth, and you are tempted to say something like this, I don't find anything there. I don't see God working. I don't see his ways. All I see is so-and-so beget, so-and-so beget, so-and-so. So what? Let it humble you. Let it cause you to be patient in the middle of your trial. Let it caution you. Stop and realize that God is indeed working in your life. We need to realize that we don't always have all of the data and information available by which to judge God's ways in our present situation. Let me say that again. We need to realize that we don't always have all of the data and information that God has available by which to judge God's ways and what he's doing in our present situation. Perhaps what we are undergoing right now is also for the people of God who come after us. That was the case with Ruth and Naomi. Maybe your tribulation, your trial, your suffering that you're experiencing right now is so that the people of God in coming years will hear of God's faithfulness to you now and they will be encouraged then. We have to read between the lines. 
The situation of Naomi and Ruth led to King David and ultimately led to the King David prophesied by the prophets, namely Jesus Christ, God's own son. We saw that last week in Matthew's gospel that Ruth was in part of Jesus' family line. From Ruth and what she was experiencing came God's son into this world, the God-man Jesus Christ who would save his people from their sins. Reading between the lines of Ruth and Naomi's life, we see that the gospel was at work, and it's at work in your life too. God is there. He may be hidden, but he is there. Whatever you are going through, know that he is there even when you can't see him or can't see his hand at work, and you scratch your head and you're flabbergasted and you say, why are you doing what you're doing? Or are you even doing anything, God? Know that he is working. The early American Indian boys, in order to become a brave, had to undergo severe testing. They would be taken out into the the woods far away from camp and left by themselves unarmed. If they endured through the night, then in the morning they would be recognized as a brave. There was a certain boy who was dropped off by his father and the night seemed so long to him. He wondered if he would make it all alone in the darkness. He had thoughts of doubt, wondering how his father could have left him all alone in the wilderness by himself. But when the rays of light came through the trees in the morning, the boy saw his father standing some ways away with his bow drawn, ready if needed. Standing there watching over his son in the darkness all night long. It's like that with us. In the midst of our destitution and despair like Naomi and Ruth, we may only see the darkness, we may only hear the threats, but the Lord is there standing with his bow drawn, ready to protect us. We may not see him, but he is there. If we read between the lines of our lives, we will find the sovereign, good sometimes invisible hand of God, threading our lives together by the thread of his goodness and grace. And he's doing it, threading it all together for our good and the good of the people of God who come after us. And ultimately he's doing it for the glory of his name and the expansion of his kingdom. May we become a people who trust in the God who works even when he is not seen. May we be a people who are willing to say, I surrender. I trust you. I want facts. I want data. I want information. I want you to tell me, God, why you are doing what you're doing right now. May we become a people who surrender that supposed right to know everything, and may we trust in him. I think it would be fitting, since we started our exposition in the book of Ruth, by quoting William Cooper, to give the floor to him once again. He was born in 1731, died in 1800. Cooper was a gifted songwriter, wrote many of the hymns that we sing, but he suffered immensely, struggled with depression, and was severely suicidal. Wanted to take his life all the time. He was a Christian, but his pain and darkness went deep. But that's what makes the lyrics to his most famous hymn so meaningful. He says in his hymn that God moves in mysterious ways. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. 
He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Ruth and Naomi could not interpret their situation when they left Moab as poor, needy widows. They could not interpret their situation because they did not have all the data and the information that they wanted. Maybe you feel like Ruth and Naomi today. Maybe what you're going through, you're wondering, God, I need some information here. Tell me what you're doing, and you don't hear anything. And you don't see his hand at work. I think Ruth and Naomi would tell you today, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. God can do far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. Let's pray. Father, thank you once again for your word, which has reminded us of your goodness, your sovereignty, how so many times we want to be the interpreter of what you're doing, and how so many times we demand answers. We want data. We want information. We want to know, God, what are you doing? So many times we never know. And because of that, God, so many times we say, you must not be working at all. Would you remind us once again from your word through the life of Ruth and Naomi that you are working behind the scenes, invisible, and you're working in such a way that will exceed our wildest imaginations. May you get great glory as your people trust in you. In Jesus' name. Amen.